Few men in the modern world have given a more convincing intellectual defense of the faith than the current prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. It's a tremendous compliment. It's one of the signs of the great genius of our Holy Father, Pope, Paul, Pope John Paul II, that he would have appointed a man of such towering intellect and orthodoxy into a position of great delicacy and into a position that demanded so much. Cardinal Ratzinger, then, is a modern defender of faith, and he certainly is a splendid, splendid subject on which to conclude our series on defenders of faith in word and deed. Cardinal Ratzinger was born in Upper Bavaria in April 1927. He was the youngest of three children. His father was a constable, and they were a family of rather modest means. Going to Mass, family prayers in common, were just simply part of devout Catholic family living. It was something that they took for granted, and it was an atmosphere in which he was raised. Young Joseph Ratzinger became fascinated with the sacred liturgy of the church as a young boy. And, and when he was very small, his parents bought him a missal, and he said he literally fell in love with the Latin language and the tremendous beauty of it. He also was born into a very, very nationalistic family, as he himself recalls. We were very patriotic Bavarians by family tradition. Our father came from lower Bavaria, and in the Bavarian politics of the 19th century, there were two currents. There was one more oriented to the Reich, more German nationalistic. The other was a more Bavarian, Austrian, Francophile, and Catholic-leaning. My family belonged very clearly to this second current, which was very consciously and patriotically Bavarian and proud of our history. My mother came from Tyrol, but there, too, this southern German Catholic element was very strong. Well, when he was a young boy growing up in his native village in Bavaria, Cardinal Fulhaber of Munich came to visit one day, and he was very impressed with the cardinal and the, the imposing figure, and he, he thought to himself, I would very much like to grow up to be like him. Little did Cardinal Fulhaber know that day that someday he would ordain this young Joseph Rothinger to the priesthood in the cathedral in Munich, Germany. As far as his vocation to the priesthood was concerned, it was always difficult for him to pinpoint it precisely, and this is what he recalled. There was no lightning-like moment of illumination when I realized I was meant to become a priest. On the contrary, there was a long process of maturation, and the decision had to be, th had to be thought through and constantly rewon. I couldn't date the decision either. But the feeling that God had a plan for each person, for me too, became clear for me early on. Gradually, it became clear to me what he had in mind had to do with the priesthood. When he was 16 years of age, he was in the minor seminary in Traunstein, and he and several other seminarians were drafted into military service. They were put into anti-aircraft work at Munich, and this lasted for about a year. In the fall of 1944, he was put on work duty and transferred to the Austro-Hungarian border, just at the period of time when Hungary had been captured by the Russians. Well, he was eventually sent back to Traunstein, where he completed the, the remainder of his infantry service, 
uh, in a relatively harmless kind of atmosphere, except for one episode. He actually was placed for a brief period of time in a prisoner of war camp. He was there with about 50,000 other prisoners. It was an American prisoner of war camp, actually. And he was detained there for some time until he was released in June of 1945 when he was allowed to continue his studies for the priesthood. Now, while he was doing his theological studies in Munich, he had to wrestle with something in his conscience. He had a tremendous love for the academic study of theology. He wanted to study about the universe, about the meaning of God, about the meaning of man's relationship with God. And he really wanted to pursue the academic study of, of theology. But he also knew that studying for the diocesan priesthood meant the hard work of daily parish routine. And he thought to himself, if I'm going to accept the priesthood, I am not simply going to accept the academic part that may come open to me. I must indeed accept the priesthood in all of its details, whatever God might have in store for me in this life. So he knew that the priesthood then was an all-encompassing sort of a vocation. And when he looked back and reflected on those marvelous seminary years in Munich when he was taking his theology, this is what he writes. When I look back on the exciting years of my theological studies, I can only be amazed at everything that is affirmed nowadays concerning the preconciliar church. All of us lived with a feeling of radical change that had already arisen in the 1920s. The sense of a theology that had the courage to ask new questions and a spirituality that was doing away with what, with what was dusty and obsolete and leading to a new joy in the redemption. Dogma was conceived not as an external shackle, but as the living source that made knowledge of the truth possible in the first place. The church came to life for us above all in the sacred liturgy and in the great richness of the theological tradition. We did not take the demands of celibacy lightly, but we were convinced that we did well to trust the church's experience of many centuries and that the deep reaching renunciation that she required of us would indeed bear much fruit. Well, during his years as a, a theological student in Munich prior to his ordination, he decided on one occasion that he was going to enter into a theological contest. This contest involved the submission of a lengthy essay, a theological essay, not necessarily book length, but a very lengthy theological essay that took nine months in preparation. You entered the contest by submitting your essay under a code name, not under your own name. And if your essay won the competition, then you were pretty much guaranteed the opportunity to go on after ordination and do uh, advanced theological work, what we would call graduate theological work. As you might imagine, Joseph Ratzinger's essay did indeed win this competition for him when he was a seminarian. The title of the essay that he had to write on, uh, it, was, it was an assigned topic, the title was The People and House of God in Augustine's Doctrine of the Church. Well, Joseph Ratzinger had read rather extensively on the Church Fathers as a seminarian, and he also had taken at least one graduate seminar, or one theological seminar on St. Augustine. So he felt competent enough to enter the competition, he won the competition, and he was pretty much assured that at some point in his career, he would indeed be able to do graduate theological work. Many influences came upon him in these years, many theologians formed his mind, and finally, he was ordained to the priesthood on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, June 29, 1951, 
by Cardinal Fulhaber in the cathedral in Munich, Germany. His first assignment was parish work in the rather large parish of the most precious blood in downtown Munich. It was a parish, a very, very busy one, in which intellectuals, artists, and government officials all lived. But there were also a large number of houses in the parish belonging to employees, people who worked in small shops, the butlers and maids who were employed in the, in the wealthy households of Munich and so forth. So you had a, a mixing of many, many kinds and types of people. Now, from this parish work at the Church of the Most Precious Blood in Munich, the young Father Ratzinger learned many, many valuable lessons for his life. As he, as he writes about his reflections on the people he met in those days, in us, they saw persons who had been touched by Christ's mission and had been empowered to bring his nearness to men. Precisely because we ourselves were not the point, a friendly human relationship could develop very quickly. In other words, the priest is not the point. The priest is there to represent Jesus Christ. So when the priest does not take himself seriously, but realizes that he's there as the representative of Christ among men, well then, of course, you can develop a very healthy and a very wonderful, long-lasting friendship with so many people in the parish. This is exactly what happened then <clears throat> to the young Father Joseph Ratzinger in his first priestly assignment. Shortly thereafter, he was assigned to teach in the diocesan seminary at Freising. And while he was a professor there, he began to do work on a graduate degree that the Germans call the habilitation. When you get the habilitation degree, it allows you to teach in a German university. For example, in this case, to occupy a chair of theology in a German university. But you must first have this habilitation degree. It's something known in Europe, uh, would not be as familiar to us necessarily here in the United States. So Father Ratzinger began working on this habilitation degree while he was a seminary professor at the seminary at Freising. And an interesting thing happened to him. Uh, in his, the course of his research for this degree. He decided that he was going to concentrate on St. Bonaventure as the topic for his theological investigation. Augustine had interested him very much, but he was in his younger days, but he was becoming more appreciative of St. Augustine and his, and his uh, uh, theological thought. Now, at that time, when Father Ratzinger was a young priest, there were some changes in the whole idea of what we understand by revelation. Revelation in earlier times was seen to be a communication of truths to the intellect. But as theologians pondered the question of revelation more and more, they began to see revelation as the saving act of God through history. God revealing himself to men through history, and, and, and of course through that process, truth became gradually unveiled. Well. Father Ratzinger was going to take this particular route. He was going to take a look at the works of St. Augustine, and he was going to see if there's anything in the writings of St. Augustine which corresponded to the notion of salvation history. Now, if he could find anything about salvation history in the writings of St. Augustine, then he had to come up with the conclusion, did, or, I'm sorry, not St. Augustine, but St. Bonaventure. Uh, he would then have to come up with the conclusion, did St. Bonaventure in his writings on salvation history have anything to say about revelation that we could use today in our current understanding of Revelation. 
So this is what Father Ratzinger set himself to do as he poured through the, the great, great writings of St. Bonaventure. Well, the conclusion he came up with was somewhat to the distaste of at least one of the examining professors on the board who was going to read this, this thesis that he produced. Father Ratzinger said that at the time of St. Bonaventure, Revelation, what, what he found anyway, was that revelation was a concept always pointing to an act. The, the word revelation refers to the act in which God shows himself. And in the process of God's showing himself, there's another very important partner, namely the receiving subject. God, in revelation, shows himself to someone. So the receiving subject is as important as God doing the revealing in Revelation. Now that's what he claimed to find in the writings of St. Bonaventure. And at least one professor on his examining board said, you are absolutely incorrect. You are not being faithful to the theology, the authentic theology of St. Bonaventure. And this particular professor rejected his doctoral thesis, for his, or his uh, habilitation thesis, I should call it. He eventually got the habilitation degree, but it was after a very, very stormy, argumentative public defense in which these professors are going back and forth at each other, and there's poor Father Ratzinger sitting there through the midst of it. So it was a real cross for him to bear, but finally he did get the degree uh, that he had sought for such a long period of time, and Joseph Ratzinger would go on to hold distinguished chairs of theology at Bonn, at Munster, at Tübingen, and at Regensburg. In 1973, he was appointed the Archbishop of Munich and Freising in Germany. He accepted reluctantly after consultation with his confessor. His confessor knew his personal limitations. He knew many other things about him. But finally, he did indeed accept the, the judgment of the Holy See that he should be, that he should become the Archbishop of Munich and Freising. He selected as his Episcopal motto, co-worker of the truth. It seemed to him to blend very, very well with the past theological teaching career that he had and the new role as the chief shepherd and chief pastor, if you will, of the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising. And so we have him then moving into a very, very new kind of a role. The ancient, uh, the ancient coat of arms of the archbishops of Munich and Freising had a crowned moor on the coat of arms. Ratzinger took that to be a sign of the universality of the church, that all are one in Christ and there is no division. Now, in addition to that moor, Cardinal Ratzinger, or still Archbishop Ratzinger, chose two additional symbols for his coat of arms. One was a shell, a seashell. It reminded him of the story of St. Augustine who walked along the seashore one day and saw the young boy trying to empty all the water of the ocean into the seashell. And St. Augustine said, you can no more empty all of the water of the ocean into the seashell than you can in your human mind comprehend the divine, comprehend God. That was the first symbol. The seashell was on one side. And on the second side, there was the symbol of a bear. Now you say, why would you put a bear on your coat of arms? Well, the story was this. It went back to the ancient Bishop Corbenian. Corbenian was the first bishop of Freising a thousand years before. And the story was that Corbenian was on horseback riding to Rome. And he was, the horse was carrying him and a large satchel. A bear came out, ferociously attacked the horse, 
and, and attack the horse with such violence that the poor horse was no longer able to continue the journey. It was so injured. So the saintly bishop got off the horse, took the pack off the horse, went over to the bear, reprimanded the bear for what have you done to the horse, then took the pack, put it on the bear, and insisted that the bear carry this large pack all the way to Rome. The burden of the bishop, then, was had to be borne by this bear all the way to the eternal city. And when they finally got to Rome, the bishop took the, the pack off the bear, and the burden was removed. And it reminded Cardinal Ratzinger that whenever we do the work of God in this life, we are bearing a burden. We're not always walking in the way of success. We're not always walking in the way of popularity. We're not always walking in the way of congratulations. Cardinal Ratzinger left Munich, of course to become the prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He had first met our Holy Father in 1978 at the conclave that elected him Pope, and they immediately became close friends. It was a very, very personal decision on the part of Pope John Paul II to appoint Joseph Ratzinger the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And this is what Cardinal Ratzinger wrote about the Holy Father. He said, the first thing that won my sympathy was his uncomplicated human frankness and openness, as well as the cordiality that he radiated. There was his humor, and you also sensed a piety that had nothing false, nothing external about it. You sensed that here was a man of God. You noticed that he has suffered. He has also struggled on his way to his vocation. He lived through the whole drama of the German occupation, of the Russian occupation, of the communist regime. He blazed his own intellectual trail. He entered deeply into the whole intellectual history of Europe. This intellectual wealth, as well as his enjoyment of dialogue and exchange, these were all things that immediately made him likable to me. Well, the cardinal took over as prefect and he viewed his position as anything but an inquisitor, even though, as we know, the congregation originally called the Holy Office does come to us from the days of the Inquisition. No, he wanted to stress rather a collegial model rather than individual decision-making. He saw all the bishops of the world as his, as his partners, if you were, in a very important task. Ultimately, he once said, we have no weapons besides argument and the appeal to our faith. Well, the Cardinal Prefect really first came to the attention of the world in 1985, four years after he had assumed his position in Rome. He gave an interview to an Italian reporter by the name of Vittorio Messori. He gave it in 1985, undoubtedly because that was the 20th anniversary of the close of the Second Vatican Council. The interview became world famous and has been known ever since as the Ratzinger Report. It concerned itself with many of the difficulties in the church, which he said in 1985 were traceable to a misunderstanding of the Second Vatican Council and what the council had been about. The popes and the council fathers were expecting a new Catholic unity after Vatican II. Instead, a dissension arose that moved from self-criticism to self-destruction. The new enthusiasm that was hoped for gave way instead to a boredom, to a discouragement, and a real reform of the church, Cardinal Ratzinger said, would never come about until all the false roads were abandoned. I am convinced, he writes, 
that the damage we have incurred in these 20 years is due not, not to the true counsel, but to the unleashing within the church of latent, polemical, and centrifugal forces. And outside the church, it is due to the confrontation with a cultural revolution in the West. The success of the upper middle class, the new tertiary bourgeois with its liberal, radical ideology of individualistic, rationalistic, and hedonistic stamp. They are pretty powerful words, to say the least. At the root of the crisis, Cardinal Ratzinger said in the post-Vatican Church, was a misunderstanding of the Church. The Church is the communio sanctorum. It is the communion of saints, heaven, purgatory, and earth. But it is the communion of a sharing of holy things. And because it's a communion of a sharing of holy things, Cardinal Ratzinger said, it is not our church. It is his church. It is the church our Lord established. When we talk about our church, we're only talking about the very transitory things that make up the church today. That is the basic misunderstanding. It is the rejection of the, of the concept of an authority willed by God, an authority, therefore, that has its legitimation in God and not in a consensus of the majority of its members as in an organization. The Church of Christ is not a party, not an association, not a club. Her deep and permanent structure is not democratic, but sacramental and consequently hierarchical. So it is not our church. It is his church. Now, some 15 years after the Ratzinger report, Cardinal Ratzinger gave another interview to one Peter Seewald, concentrating on the church at the end of the millennium. This new interview was interestingly described by John Cardinal O'Connor of New York. He said, in this particular interview, Cardinal Ratzinger is at his freewheeling best, virtually roving the world with theological and cultural analyses as pungent as they are dazzling. His candor is breathtaking. Well, what did Cardinal Ratzinger see in the church 15 years later at the end of this millennium and as we go into the third millennium? He saw certain difficulties that were plaguing the church and in which, into which the church had to engage in dialogue. The first was liberation theology incorrectly perceived, looked at one-sidedly. When this occurs, Christianity is seen only as the instrument for the political reshaping of the world. The second difficulty the church had today is a liberation that aims to free human beings from their biological determination and is seen so very clearly in the sexual revolution. The third phenomenon is this idea of inculturation, the quest for one's own cultural identity. And there are very close cross connections here with, with feminism. Much is made of the cult of Mother Earth, the idea of the feminine in God. The concept of God seen patriarchally is that concept which sees the putting down of women and so on and so forth. He sees the whole concept of ecology misunderstood when we start talking about the, the divinity of the cosmos. And he sees a relativism in today's world which says that it's very undemocratic and unfair to say that one church has all of the truth and other churches do not have all of the truth or other church churches have only fragments of the truth. These are the problems of the church at the end of this millennium and as we approach the third millennium. Cardinal Ratzinger has pinpointed so many, many things in such a brilliant analysis. All of these currents of thought, though, have to be met by the church and engaged in dialogue. 
Cardinal Ratzinger would never, ever retreat from that kind of a situation, nor would he respond by engaging in a dialogue that would drive the secular culture away from the church. How then is genuine reform going to come to the church of the third millennium? Cardinal Ratzinger looked in detail at the past and the great saints who made it, and he concluded this way. For this reason, I would say that the reforms in the third millennium definitely will not come from forums or synods, though these have their legitimate and sometimes even necessary place. Reforms will come from the convincing personalities whom we will call saints. The convincing personalities whom we will call saints. Is Joseph Cardinal Rothinger one of these saints? Who can say? But he most certainly is a convincing personality, one of the great, great intellectual defenders of faith as we go into the third millennium. Thanks be to God we have him. And thank each and every one of you. And God bless you all.